Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we wrap up our series on the Book of Signs in the Gospel of John. And here, Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts will be discussing the end of the Book of John. Specifically, they'll be talking about the resurrection and the different appearances of Jesus thereafter, and they'll also cover other things along the way, such as the role of Mary. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this discussion. And here are Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts discussing the end of the Book of John. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, still on that trip back from his vacation that he was on last episode. Uh, it's a very, very long trip that he's been on. In this episode, we are finishing up our studies in the Gospel of John. We've gone through the book of signs that covers the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel and looked at the different episodes that uh, where Jesus performs some miracle, heals someone, the climactic incident is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And then uh, there's often a dispute that follows that concerning Jesus' actions or some something that follows from his actions. Uh, and to close out our studies in John, we're going ahead to the end of the book. We're not going to cover the entire book, but we want to go to the end of the book and see how the resurrection of Jesus is the climax of that book of signs. It's common for commentators to divide John's gospel into a book of signs in the first 11 chapters and then a book of glory in the last half of the book and the glorification of Jesus that takes place begins to take place on the cross according to John uh, and then is fulfilled in his resurrection shouldn't make that too stark a distinction because Jesus does things in the book of signs in order to show his glory so that the glory of God can be revealed or displayed in the people that he helps and heals and raises from the dead. So those signs are also signs of glory. Uh, but we're in a we're in a different uh, segment of the book, and this section of the book at the end, the, the climactic incident in the book is the resurrection of Jesus and the witnesses to the resurrection and the aftermath of the resurrection, and that kind of ties up the book and brings those signs into uh, completion. I should say before we go on that uh, I will say Kanye West, and we're not going to talk about him again the rest of this podcast episode that will make this podcast episode unique among Christian podcasts. A couple things that I, uh, that I think are linking the uh, resurrection of Jesus back to, especially the last of the signs. I think there are other things that suggest links to the other signs, but um, the, the last of the last of the signs is the raising of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus uh, is linked to that not only in the broad sense that this is another resurrection, but also in specific ways. Jesus is placed in a tomb at the end of uh, chapter 19. Uh, he's placed in a tomb in a garden. Uh, there's a stone that's placed in front of the in front of the tomb, the cave, verse one of chapter 20. That stone, when Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb, that stone is already taken away. In the story of Lazarus, Jesus asks asks them to take away the stone so that uh, he can call Lazarus out from the tomb. Uh, then you have several people that are coming to witness. There's a, a woman named Mary, which links us back to chapter 11. And then there's uh, Peter and the beloved disciple both come running to the tomb to see what, what has happened. They want to follow up on the report that uh, Mary Magdalene has brought to them. 
And so you have people arriving to see the empty tomb, which is in terms of the, the narrative structure of the story links up with the various movements that are going on in the course of in the course of that story. Jesus traveling to get to Bethany so he can be at the tomb and call Lazarus out. Martha going out to meet Jesus on his way there, and then Mary going out to meet Jesus. So you have all these movements going back and forth that are also part of uh, the initial narrative of the day of Jesus' resurrection. One last thing that I, I thought was I made an interesting connection with other things that we've talked about uh, is the we've talked some about the elusiveness of Jesus, uh, Jesus being absent, Jesus putting his the people who whom he heals and helps, putting them in situations where they're. Uh, under assault, they're having to endure hardship and trials. Mary and Martha have to wait for Jesus before he comes. They have to watch their brother die. Uh, Jesus doesn't come to heal him. And then he's dead four days and Jesus still hasn't come. So Jesus is absent. He withdraws uh, and leaves people to to suffer apparently on their own. Uh, and I think part of that has to do with the the what Jesus tells Nicodemus early in the gospel uh, when he talks about the gift of the Spirit. The one who's born of the Spirit is like the wind. Uh, he comes and goes. You don't know where he's coming from or where he's going. You, you hear the sound of his sound of it, but you don't know its source or its destiny. And Jesus is that one born of the Spirit. He's elusive. People try to catch him repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, and people can't catch him. Uh, the people who need Jesus, they can't find him when they seem to need him. Uh, and here, uh, when you think you've got finally got Jesus pinned down. If there's one thing that's going to pin somebody in place and make make sure you can find them the next time you go looking for them, it's death. Once somebody dies, then they, they typically stay in place. Uh, but even here, Jesus is elusive. Uh, Mary Magdalene goes to the garden uh, and to the tomb looking for Jesus, uh, thinking that, sure, that's got to be the place where I can find him. And then he's gone and she has to go searching again. So Jesus in life and in death is the one who is born of the Spirit who is uh, coming and going without, he's not under human control. Uh, and even in death, he's the one born in the spirit. Throughout John, we've seen a focus upon days as well. And we see the very same thing at the outset of this chapter. Now on the first day of the week, there's a beginning of a new week, the Sabbath events that we've seen in a number of the signs where Jesus performs a miracle upon the Sabbath day leading to controversy with the Jews is now replaced with an emphasis upon the start of a new week. The focus that we have upon um, Sunday as opposed to Sabbath, I think, is very much related to this shift, the start of a new um, creation week or the start of uh, a new um, covenant order that is represented in this new week that's begun. Yes, that's uh, there are several days that uh, uh, several ways that that's described uh, here in beginning of John 20. It's the first day of the week. It's uh, verse 19. It's the same on that day, the first day of the week, Jesus appears to his disciples in a closed room. Then there's verse 26 talks about an eighth day period on the eighth day after that first appearance to his disciples, Jesus comes back. So you have these, the church has long recognized that there's an eighth day theme going here, that uh, you have the seven days of the original creation that uh, come to completion with the Sabbath. And then you have the first day after the creation week, the beginning of a beginning of a new week, the beginning of a new time, a new epoch. And the eighth day, which is the day of resurrection, is the marker of that entry into new creation and into 
into a new era. The tomb itself and the events surrounding it are curious because there's a degree of detail that's given that doesn't seem to be merely for the purpose of historical verisimilitude, nor does it seem to be necessary to the plot or understanding what's taking place in a strictly um, narrative sense. But yet there are details that maybe cause us to reflect upon the significance of certain detail, certain features. So for instance, the way that the angels are described as sitting where the body of Jesus has lain, one at the head and one at the foot. Um, also the seeming race between the beloved disciple and Peter to the tomb. The fact that the beloved disciple reaches it first, looks inside, and then Peter goes inside first. In a number of those sorts of details, as in the encounter with Mary and Jesus in the garden, it seems that the author is telling us there might be something more going on here, um, not least perhaps mm-hmm. in the um, the description of the tomb being perhaps like the um, the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubs on either side, um, overshadowing and then the linen garments may be associated with the high priest on the day of atonement yeah that's that would be my that would be where i would want to go with this um but of course you also want to point out that this is a this is a passage that affirms petrine primacy um because the beloved disciple gets to the tomb first but he doesn't go in until peter has gone in because peter is the head of the church and the first pope and he's the first, the first apostle that should be a witness to the resurrection. I don't mean that, but yeah, I think it is. I think it is a uh, inner sanctuary. You're in a garden. The original garden was the was the sanctuary for Adam and Eve. And the reconstituted gardens of the Old Testament are all uh, sanctuaries, temple, the tabernacle, and the temple. Uh, and this is, as you said, the angels uh, at either end suggest the cherubim of the ark on the day of atonement. The high priest took off his garments of glory and beauty in order to carry out the work of the uh, the work of the day of atonement interestingly um, mike mole a, a friend of theopolis observed the that the the high priest on the day of atonement is wrapped in linen uh, which is a burial cloth in at least in some passages of scripture so there might be a, a very direct connection there with uh, the garments that jesus is wearing when he's put into the tomb jesus also removes his outer garment in john 13 um, as he washes his disciples feet Right, so that would be another link with the work of the work of the priest on the day of atonement. He takes off his garments of glory and beauty, sets them aside, wraps himself in this linen garment, goes about the work of the day of atonement, and then discards those linen garments and puts on his garments of glory and beauty again. So, if if this is intended, uh, the the linen wrappings in verse five are intended to be an allusion to that. Then we're in some Jesus has uh, at least. Um, begun the work of the atonement. Uh, Hebrew suggests that the work of atonement as fulfilled by Jesus isn't completed until his ascension. John might be thinking in different terms that the ascension is taking place in the cross and resurrection and Jesus actually completes the day of atonement by his death and resurrection. Uh, but uh, there would be a, an indication that Jesus' work of cleansing the holy place, Jesus' work of purifying his people has been completed and so he's laid aside the linen garments of death and he's put on the garments of glory and beauty, as it were. And he's now restored as the, as the high priest after this climactic day of atonement. 
there's a series of appearances here. Uh, we've, we've talked about uh, Peter and and uh, the beloved disciple coming to the coming to the tomb. Uh, then, of course, uh, Jesus appears to Mary. That's the next episode. And that, then that evening, uh, in a different location, but on the same day, Jesus appears to the, to the 12 minus Judas minus Thomas. And then beyond that, on the eighth day, you have this further unveiling to the apostles along with Thomas. So you have a, you have a staged, you have this stage thing. Mary is, Mary, of course, is in fact the first witness to the empty tomb, the open tomb. Peter and the beloved disciple, I think the beloved disciple is John. Uh, so Peter and John come to the tomb and they're witnesses to the empty tomb and the fact that Jesus has left his grave clothes to the side. Uh, but then Mary is back in verse 11 and Mary is the, the one who first encounters Jesus living and uh, speaking to her. So the, Mary plays, a, as, as in all the gospels, it's the women at the tomb who first encountered Jesus, who are the first witnesses of the resurrection, representing the, the new Eve of the church, who is uh, welcoming and identifying the new, uh, the new Adam, the bridegroom. And I think that Adam and Eve scenario is playing out in the encounter that Mary has with Jesus. The description of the tomb and the various spices associated with it, and also when we go back to chapter 12, the way that Mary anoints the feet of Christ um, and washes them with her hair that in both of these occasions these images are associated with death and burial but they're also associated with love um, we see that in the context of the song of songs these specific spices are brought forward as um, spices associated with love and the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom in song of songs 1 verse 12 it says, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. That description of the bridegroom, that description of the nard giving forth its fragrance, that might help us to think about uh, Mary's anointing of Christ, not just as an action associated with his death, but also an action associated with love. The way that Mary acts towards Christ has a bride-bridegroom character to it. And the encounter with Mary and Christ in the garden again. Likewise, the tomb might be seen as a sort of trysting place. It's not just a tomb, but it's a place where um, the bridegroom rests in preparation to meet with the bride. Yeah, and I think there are a couple of other uh, indications that we're in the kind of the realm of the Song of Songs. The fact that Mary is uh, seeking for Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus' words to her are, uh, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Uh, this is picking up on that theme I, I talked about earlier with the, the elusive Jesus. She can't find Jesus even when, he's, even when he's dead. But there are a couple of scenes in the Song of Songs where the bride is on her bed, awakened, finds herself alone. In the first case, she goes out on the street seeking her beloved. The second uh, occasion, her beloved comes to the to the door of her room and wants to get in, and she puts him off, and then goes goes searching for him. So that uh, the woman seeking the seeking the uh, bridegroom is is a uh, part of the background here. Uh, Jeff Myers in an essay that I believe we posted on the Theopolis 
Theopolis website some years ago drew out the connections between the Song of Songs and this resurrection appearance, and particularly highlighted the Jesus statement to Mary, stop clinging, clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to my Father. So there's, a, there's an allusion to the Song of Songs in that statement of Jesus that uh, Jeff highlighted. So we're in, we're in the realm of the Song of Songs, which means we're in the realm of Adam and Eve. Jesus is the, gar- is the gardener, not in the sense that Mary thinks him, but he truly is the gardener. He's the new, he's the new Adam uh, who has come. Uh, he's the, not the Adam who comes from the earth, earthy, but he's the heavenly Adam uh, who now lives by the power of the Spirit and by the power of uh, the uh, of an indestructible life. But he but he is the gardener that she's searching for, and he is the beloved. So those Edenic and uh, Solomonic scenes overlap here. Mary's playing the role of Eve. Mary's playing the role of the church. Mary's playing the role of the bride of the bride. And that uh, just to close that out in the sweep of John's gospel, that that that's the this is the nearest we get to a, a kind of wedding scene within the Gospel of John. The uh, marital imagery starts very early in John's gospel. The wedding at Cana, John identifies Jesus as the bridegroom, uh, and there are other hints that Jesus he encounters the woman at the well. There are other hints that Jesus is the bridegroom, but there isn't anything like a, a consummation of that. Uh, of that courtship. Uh, and even here, there's not a consummation. Uh, Jesus says, stop clinging to me. There's still a marriage yet to come. Uh, but this is the, insofar as John's gospel is concerned, this is kind of the climax of that bride bridegroom uh, theme. Uh, as we noted before that, that theme actually needs the book of revelation to be completed. You have to put the two books together to see how that is, uh, how that bridegroom theme is uh, fulfilled in the formation of a new bride, uh, the Jerusalem that descends from heaven. There are two encounters with the disciples that follow this, um, where Jesus appears to them as they're gathered together. Um, the first one with just the 10, and then the next with um, Thomas with them. Once again, it seems that the character of Thomas is to teach us something about the um, appropriate sort of faith that must be exercised in Christ. It's a paradigmatic example of, um, well, he sees and he believes, um, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This theme that goes throughout the gospel of the word that must be, oh, the authority of the word and the word is the word of Christ, the word that is the creative, powerful word that can bring life to the dead. It's also a word that's expressed in the apostles' testimony um, and Thomas's faith responding primarily to that act of seeing and touching is contrasted with the faith that responds to the word of Christ and the word borne by the apostles concerning Christ. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's that's essential I think to understand what's going on with Thomas. The to see his that episode in the sequence of John 20 and the the concluding statement in verses 31 30 and 31 and Jesus statement in verse 29 too. Uh, Blessed are those who do not see and yet have believed. So in the course of the chapter you have a series a different types of encounters with Jesus. Mary or, or the disciples uh, see that the tomb is empty, 
they believe in some sense, verse 8 tells us, but they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So I'm not sure. It's not clear exactly what they're believing. And besides, they just go back home and they also lock themselves in a room uh, for fear of the Jews, verse 19 says. So to what degree have they actually understood what the resurrection is about? Mary actually encounters Jesus, but doesn't recognize him at first. So you have a series of encounters that are that are inconclusive. Thomas is part of that sequence. It's not. It's not like Thomas is is an outstandingly doubting character in in the context of John twenty. He's just another <laughs> uh, confused character, uh, another confused disciple uh, who's looking for a certain kind of confirmation of the resurrection and receives it. And actually, the the whole the whole sequence of appearances climaxes with Thomas's declaration, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Even though he's called Doubting Thomas, he's the first one to make that declaration. Peter Peter and the beloved disciple don't. The ten disciples don't when Jesus comes to them. Uh, it's Thomas who makes that declaration after going through a period of doubt. So, Doubting Thomas is an accurate description of Thomas. He does doubt, but putting it in context shows that he's not, he's not unique in that, but uh, the others also have, if not doubts, at least confusions, and they still need to, the light still needs to come into them so that they can grasp what Jesus has done by the resurrection. I do find it um, interesting to compare and contrast the way that the women relate to Christ in the Gospels to the way that the disciples, um, the 12 apostles, relate to Christ. The women seem to have an especially strong relationship with Christ's presence, his bodily presence. And they're the ones that stick around even when the mission seems to have failed. The disciples, their relationship to Christ is more focused upon the mission. Um, But yet the women's response to Christ is seen in characters like Mary Magdalene, the clinging on to Christ, or Mary, the brother or the sister of Lazarus, who... um, washes his feet that expression of love and personal attachment to him um, and in these cases i think as you say we're seeing a number of different examples of responses to christ and there's something specific about the um, bride's response to the bridegroom that i think is manifest in characters such as mary uh, bethany and mary magdalene and other characters who have of the female characters who have a relationship primarily with Jesus' body and presence, not just with um, his mission. That's an interesting contrast. Just just like a guy to be interested in the in the task instead of the person. We haven't uh, commented on the role of the Holy Spirit in the in Jesus' first appearance. Uh, it occurred to me that um, uh, there might be John might be intending some kind of parallel between Jesus enclosed in the tomb and the disciples in the room that's shut and locked. Uh, so if that's the case, then the, the import would be that the disciples, even after Jesus has burst through the tomb and opened the gates of death, the disciples are still afraid of death, and they're still kind of locked in their own tomb, their, their uh, closed room, until Jesus arrives and breathes the Spirit on them. This is the so-called Johannine Pentecost uh, which occurs not 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, uh, as we're told in uh, uh, in Acts two, but this is a this is a Pentecostal event, a gift of the Spirit that occurs uh, on 
uh, the first Easter on the, on the day of Jesus' resurrection. They receive the first fruits of the Spirit. These aren't contradictory accounts. Uh, I don't mean to imply that. It's not like you have to choose between whether Jesus gave his Spirit at Easter or at Pentecost. And Jesus bestows his Spirit in, in a series of events. There's a sense in which he bestows his Spirit from the cross. The Gospels tell us that he not... Not just that he gave up his spirit, but they handed over his spirit. The, the, the verb doesn't simply mean that it's his, he's expiring, but it means he's delivering his, his spirit over to those who follow him. And then you have this resurrection uh, gift of the spirit uh, where Jesus breathes on them. And then a climactic gift of the spirit, or at least the beginning of a series of Pentecostal events in the book of Acts in Acts 2. It's not like you have to choose one or the other. But it, it's important to see that Jesus is giving his spirit uh, to his fearful, uh, closed-in disciples uh, and giving them authority uh, by that spirit. Specifically, the, the power they're given is the power to release sins and to retain sins, verse 23 says. So their uh, authority as, as rulers over the people of God is conferred by the spirit, and they're taking on some of Jesus' own authority when they receive the spirit that he gives them. You could perhaps illustrate that as the movement from a dying breath to an act of breathing upon to a mighty rushing wind. Right. Yeah, that's the that's good. That's a that's a way to summarize the sequence. You, you mentioned the I think the contrast between the women and the and the men and the and the 12 is interesting. We do have some uh, something of a variation on that, perhaps, in the following chapter, the last chapter of John's Gospel, uh, where uh, Jesus appears to his disciples one last time. He appears to them outside. They're no longer inside their room, locked inside the room for fear of the Jews, but they're out in the open. They're out at the sea. So the movement from inside to outside, that's uh, in, I think that's symbolically a kind of missional movement. The event that takes place with the great catch of fish uh, is a sign of the fishing expedition that they'll be on when they go out to the Sea of Nations and begin fishing for men. And then the, 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 point, I, the point I wanted to make was the concluding scene where Jesus, they see Jesus on the shore and he's prepared breakfast for them. And you do have this, this uh, scene of intimacy where Jesus is feeding them and Jesus is restoring Simon uh, to his fellowship. Uh, the three questions that he asked Simon obviously link with the three denials earlier in John's gospel. Um, but uh, as you said, the, the, there's, a, there's an intimate, quiet scene here, but the, the conclusion of each of those exchanges is that Jesus sends Peter back out on a mission. <laughs> Do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you well. Then tend my lambs. Then shepherd my sheep. Then take care of my sheep. Uh, love is expressed for the 12, the 10, 11, rather. Uh, love is expressed for them by carrying out the mission of Jesus. And uh, the meal that they have together is fellowship with Jesus for the sake of that mission that they're carrying out. Within the structure of the gospel, um, I think it's Richard Borkham who points out that there are 496 syllables in the prologue. And in chapter 21, there are 496 words. There seems to be a sort of balance to the story that's provided by this. If the prologue that begins the book in chap- chapter 1 verses 1 to 18 presents us with the big picture of all that goes beforehand Christ as the one who establishes the creation through whom all things are created etc 
chapter 21 prepares us for what's going to happen next. There's an anticipation of the later ministry of the church. And we've seen the characters of Peter and the beloved disciple together going towards the tomb and the significance of the relationship between them. And we see the same thing in this chapter. We also see certain themes that um, draw our mind back to previous incidents within the Gospels. Within the Gospel, there's a meal of um, bread and fish. There's an there's a charcoal fire, um, the same place where Peter denied Christ three times. Now he's called by a charcoal fire to um, recommit himself three times. And then we see other details that um, we could reflect upon um, that I think connect with um, some of the things that we see earlier on, particularly the 153 fish. Um, there's a piece on the Biblical Horizons website where James Jordan makes the case that the 153 fish are probably collect- connected with the name of the two places, Engedi and En Eglame, in chapter 47 of of Ezekiel, where the waters flow out from the temple and give life to the waters that um, were salty and that weren't um, bearing life. And now they become a place of plentiful fish and there are fishermen fishing by the shores of the sea. And here, the water that Christ has promised, the living water that he promises, the water that flows out that he talks about in chapter 7. Now it is presented in uh, an image of the later ministry of the church, this task of fishing, um, which again is a theme that we've remarked upon before, the importance of the boat as an image perhaps of the church and an image of the ministry of the church in fishing among the nations um, and the Gentiles and the fish in that connection. This concluding chapters, it seemed to um, gather up the various messages or incidents that we've we've looked at over the last couple of months. Uh, Jesus performs these signs in order to reveal uh, the glory that he's uh, the glory of the Father, His own glory. Uh, he does these signs in order to reveal the impact of the gospel and of His ministry. He's bringing a new covenant, covenant of joy, a bridal, uh, a wedding covenant uh, that is a time of rejoicing and union. He heals. He releases people from their afflictions. Uh, he brings people back to life, and uh, he's summing up all that in in his own death and resurrection. He triumphs over death and all of the effects of the curse by his resurrection, and then he's commissioning his disciples as witnesses to what he's accomplished and uh, giving them the spirit so that their witness is going to have the effect that he intends. So um, even though the the language of signs has kind of dies out in the second half of John's gospel, I think that that's still background and preparation for exactly what Jesus is doing at the end of the, at the, end of the book uh, in his own work and in the work that he commissions his disciples to do. The character of Peter within chapters 20 and 21 is curious. In both cases, we have him engaged in physical tasks. Um, first of all, having like a running race with the beloved disciple 
And then here, putting on his outer garment, jumping into the sea uh, about 100 yards away from the shore and going towards the shore. And then later, pulling in the whole net full of fish. It seems that Peter, first of all, he's physically outmatched within chapter 21. In chapter 20, but in chapter 21, he's almost performing Herculean tasks. That's interesting, the transition that you're talking about, which is uh, not unlike the transition we see in Peter from the kind of bumbling, sincere but bumbling uh, disciple of the Gospels into the truly the leading disciple of the, at least the first part of the book of Acts. And uh, you have this growth in stature and power that uh, seems to be signified right there at the beginning, at the, at the end of John's Gospel. And again, that would tie in with the, with the fact that these concluding chapters are about the commissioning of the disciples to carry on Jesus' own mission. And not only his commission, he's not just telling him, go do this, but he's empowering them to do it so that they, their stature grows so that they can, they can actually do the work of tending his sheep and caring for his people. The very end of the gospel ends on a similar note to that which it begins. Um, there's the cosmic opening up of the story. So if the story began with the creation of all things by the word, the story ends with the statement that if all of the actions of Christ were to be recorded, the whole world could not contain it. It begins with the witness of John the Baptist and it ends with the witness of another John. And so as we've come to the end, I think it encapsulates many of the great themes of the book. It ties up some of the loose ends. It recalls some of the crucial themes and then at the end, it sends us out with a statement of why all these things were written. They're written for the sake of our faith, so that we might be those who received the word. And through receiving the word, um, people rejected him at the beginning. We are called to be those who receive, and through receiving his word, to be those who have life. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.